This is Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This series is presented by the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. On March 4, 2018, Raymond Mansfield had an experience of a lifetime. That night, Oscars night in Los Angeles, he saw a small indie film he helped produce, Jordan Peele's Get Out, be recognized with four nominations and a win for Best Original Screenplay. Mansfield has come a long way from his time as a student in the RTF department here at UT. When he moved to LA, Mansfield took a number of gigs, including working for comedian entertainer Bernie Mac at Three Arts Entertainment. He later created a production company specializing in packaged content for DVDs. And in 2016, he helped launch QC Entertainment, the company that would help discover and produce Peel's Get Out, one of the breakout hits of 2017. Mansfield reflects on his career, how he sought and found opportunities in Hollywood, and the many challenges and opportunities of producing independent films today. He spoke on April 23, 2018 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Austin filmmaker and RTF lecturer, Micah Barber. All right, hello everyone. Thank you for joining us for Media Industry Conversations. Uh, I'm Micah Barber. I'm a guest host today for our talk with Ray Mansfield. Um, first, I'd like to thank Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary for their work on this excellent series, as well as their support staff, Brett Siegel, Kyle Rather, Annie Major, and Britta Hansen. Thanks as well to the RTF faculty and staff, especially Interim Chair Tom Schatz, uh, the RTF Department, including Communications and Programs Coordinator Alana Wakeman, and the Moody College of Communication, with special thanks to Dean Bernhardt and Assistant Dean Mike Wilson. I'd encourage students in the audience to consider uh, taking the Business of Hollywood course offered by RTF in the fall, which is taught by Elisa Perrin. And in that class, uh, you'll get the chance to sit in on conversations like this. So it's a pretty neat opportunity. Um, we're on Twitter at RTFMIC. You can check out our website for more information on upcoming speakers, as well as great podcasts of sessions with previous guests. And now let me introduce you to our special guest today. So Ray Mansfield is a founding partner of QC Entertainment. QC recently released a certain little $4.5 million movie that opened as the number one movie in America, grossed over $250 million worldwide, received four Oscar nominations, including a historic win for Jordan Peele's Best Original Screenplay. That movie was called Get Out. Who saw Get Out, I'm curious? That's thank, thank you. <laughs> that's pretty good representation in this demographic. Uh, in a couple weeks, QC will premiere a highly anticipated new movie with Spike Lee called Black Klansman at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival in France. Uh, before QC, Ray was co-president of Movie Package Company, a company that packaged movies. But it's a little fancier than that sounds, and I imagine Ray has a lot to teach us from those days at MPC. Uh, Ray started his career working with Bernie Mac at Three Arts Entertainment, which is also pretty cool. Uh, he's an, also an alumni of our program here at the University of Texas at Austin. And frankly, his career is really popping right now. So we're very fortunate to have him come out from Los Angeles to be with us. So let's give a warm welcome to Ray Mansfield. <laughs> All right, so uh, here's what we're going to do today. Um, we're going to start just with a little bit of a snapshot of what Ray does in his day to day. And then we're going to wind back the clock and talk about what it was like when he was sitting in your seats, not these actual seats because this building wasn't here. 
Uh, and then we'll come back to the present and talk about what he and his company are working on right now. And then we'll have time for Q&A at the end. So it should be a lot of fun. Um, um, so let's get started. So uh, Ray, there are many kinds of producers. Yeah. And uh, you've worn several different hats on many productions. So yeah. how do you answer the question, what kind of producer you are? Um, I'm the type of producer who takes uh, the business and the creative in equal measure. So for me, I think the job is 50% business, 50% creative. I think you sort of have to approach both aspects um, equally. And so for me, I think it's just as important to be comfortable in an editing room as you are in a boardroom. And you know, I can, talking about what you do on a day-to-day, -day, I could literally go from a notes meeting into a banking meeting into a distribution deal negotiation into a co-financing negotiation and go to the editing room, do a spotting session or a color timing session. And um, so you never really, you know, like the way that I approach the business is by uh, jack of all trades, not really focusing on, well, I'm the guy that's really good at script notes. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of become that way because through my career, um, so often you're waiting for other people to make things happen for you. And you're relying on other people, whether it's a, a lawyer or uh, an agent or whatever it is, whatever you're waiting for someone else to give you what you need to move something forward. And I found that to be a path to waiting around and not getting anything done. So what I ended up doing was really uh, striving to learn all of the ins and outs of how to negotiate a talent deal, how to negotiate a distribution deal. Uh, I wrote five screenplays just to learn the process inside and out. Um, I literally cut and spliced on a steam back here, learned nonlinear editing here, um, brought that to uh, my career, having actually taken apart and put together uh, in the editing room. Um, my first job after leaving here was as a DP on a documentary. And so for me, the, the goal was do everything while you try to find out what your absolute strength is. And what I realized along the way was, oh, I like it all. Well, that's producing. Mm -hmm. so, um, so then I was able to take all those disparate skill sets and experiences and pull them together. And to this day, I use things I was doing even back in film school and, and thereafter in the decisions that I make day to day now. Great. So um, as someone who loves everything. In your current company, uh, you're one of the founding partners or three partners, is that correct? Yeah. And so talk about how you might work with your partners in the day-to-day -day and how your, your company also handles a lot of things from development, financing, even production and distribution. So how, with a small, tight team, how do you guys work together? Um, well, our team kind of came about because it's, well, there's me and, and one of my partners' name is Sean McKittrick, and he's a... Um, traditionally production and development creative oriented producer. And, um, and our other partner is the high net worth money guy behind the company. And so you know his role is very clear. Mm -hmm. he's, he's focused on um, what is the you know, financial opportunity for this project, 
Um, then we have to go through, I go with my other partner through the production budget, the schedule we work with the line producers. We try and make it all make sense so that when we go to him, we say, we, we work on a unanimous approval basis. So we go to him and say, we feel comfortable with this, and here's why you should too. And to do that requires us um, splitting up the, everything I was talking about from, you know, do we, do we all unanimously agree that this script is as strong as it needs to be to compete in the current marketplace? where now you're getting such fragmented viewership with people going to, more interested in going to ACL Fest than they are going to a movie on the weekend or, or more inclined to play video games than they are to go see the latest movie coming out that Friday. You know, how do you separate what you're making to make that happen and then does it make financial sense? And so often those things, even after a year or two of work, don't add up and one of the things that's new-ish about this company is instead of just forcing it into existence because you need things happening, we'll say, well, let's take our foot off the gas on that one because we'd rather do the right things than the wrong things right now. Great. Yeah. Can you talk about, um, this is something in producing classes that we sometimes talk about uh, with the green lighting process and how as a, as a producer or as a company do you get to the place where you can be developing multiple projects and decide to take the gas off and not force something. Mm -hmm. How do you get to that point? Yeah, how do you get to that point? Um, luck and hard work. Yeah. Um, you know, for us, it's we're generally developing between 10 and 30 things at a time. And on those things, we do everything from the creative notes through the entire pre-production process of like location scouting, getting your tax incentive in whatever state you're going to be shooting in. Um, <clears throat> we make the offers to cast. We negotiate those deals. We um, do the, the studio deals if we're going to do it with a studio. Um, we're on-set producers doing the day-to-day, -day, running the, you know, uh, handling the cost report meetings every week, watching where we're at with our accounting. And, um, you know, watching the dailies every day and saying, you know, looking at the shot list, coming up with the shot list with the directors, saying, got to make sure you get this coverage. We're, you're going to want this in the editing room, particularly for first-time filmmakers, which is a lot of what we do. And um, on through sitting in the editing room, uh, cutting the movie with the directors often, and um, through the finishing stages of color correction and sound mixing, and then we... Uh, directly handle the distribution deals with the distributors if we didn't pre-sell it during pre-production or development. And so at any given time, while we're developing all these random things, we're also in some stage of production, post-production, pre-production on another project. So right this minute, we have three movies in post-production. Um, and so now we're moving, one we just had a buyer screening for, another one we're having a buyer screening in two weeks, another one we're premiering in Cannes. All of these things are still actually in pre-production right this minute. And uh, they literally won't be done until like the day they need to be done, which is so often the case. And um, so, and then now that's while we're um, in pre-production on another movie, uh, in development on, you know, a dozen feature films and also now moving television into that equation, which is 
undeniably an important part of the business mm. and trying to carve out a career in TV, which isn't traditionally what we've done. Um, you know, between me and my partners, we're on our 31st or 32nd movie. Okay. Um, zero TV shows. Mm -hmm. So in the TV world, we don't have that much value. So now we're trying to break down that barrier. And um, so now we have about a half dozen TV shows that we're developing on top of it and learning how, what's the difference between films and TV and, and you know, how are they different as far as narrative structure and, and you know, where you might have a mastery of something over here, you might be a novice over here and you know, trying to learn a new business. Mm -hmm. What is, um, actually, when you and I talked on the phone last week, uh, there was something that you said, your, your company really has uh, a pretty fresh and unique approach to working with directors and to thinking about the, the, the whole process, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that in terms of, um, you know, you were describing to me how you like to treat everyone as partners with, with a similar goal in mind, as opposed to being closed, having closed doors related to the cost of things and the, and the ultimate goal. Yeah, you know, I, uh, oddly, this is unique. Um, hmm. You know, we, we're really transparent with everyone we're working with. We talk them through why things cost what they cost, why a particular person might be um, positioning something in a certain way that might be more advantageous for them than another person. You know, why when they're saying they can't live without something, they have to give up something else, and, and we create what we call wants versus needs for them. And, and it's like two columns. What do you want versus what do you need? And you have to convince us and yourself why, why one thing would move from one column to the other. And um, you know, most people don't take the time. They just say, no. No, you can't have that. Um, or they say yes, and then unilaterally make a decision to take something else away mm -hmm. without talking to them. And the way that we operate is in a very like no hiding information um, policy because it makes for a better it makes for better teamwork it makes for a better end product which is really the thing that matters but it also makes for uh, repeat business so the peop so when you have uh, somebody that blows up off of a movie or something they're not like great glad I got to use you as a catapult hmm. uh, and see you later you know they they go oh I feel like you were an instrumental part of of the reason we succeeded, and I don't want to let that thing go. And uh, oddly, you know, and I don't think it's unique to the entertainment business, but so often the people that have the control or have the power are very uh, shy with uh, guarding. They're guarding their details all the time because they want to keep control. They don't want other people to understand what they're doing because the second they can understand what they're doing, they can have their own opinion. And we would rather somebody have an informed opinion and challenge ours than we would have misunderstanding or miscommunication. And so, you know, we like to take that attitude from the very first day of working with somebody at the script stage, ideally. Great. Um, I'm tempted to turn the conversation to Get Out, which has been such a huge success in the, uh, in the past year plus. Um, and I also want to get back to your roots here. Sure. So yeah. uh, maybe let's, let me ask one question about Get Out since we're in the talking about how you work on projects. So um, my understanding, so uh, Jordan Peele, this was his directorial debut. Yeah. 
uh, also wrote the screenplay, brought it to your company. Um, can you talk a little bit about, um, about that specific process anecdotally, but also uh, it's very interesting that, um, that your company then found partners that you thought would be effective and ended up partnering with Blumhouse yeah. and, uh, and Universal then, right? Yeah. Uh, distributed the film and, and it did pretty well. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Well, it started with my, my partner, Sean, had made a movie called Hell Baby with um, the guys that did Reno 911 many years ago and Keegan-Michael Key was in that movie. And while they were making that movie, which was a horror comedy. Um, Hell Baby fans? Hell ba I, doubt, I doubt anyone's ever heard <laughs> of it. Um, the, but it's a great stoner comedy for <laughs> midnight. Um, the, Keegan was like, you gotta meet Jordan. He loves horror movies and you know, going back to this transparent way of interacting with people, he was like, he would really dig you, um, you know, just the way you approach people. So he set up a meeting with Jordan, and Jordan basically pitched over coffee this idea, and he was like, look, this is the idea that I'd want to make, um, but it's the unmakeable movie, and no one's ever going to make it, but like, this is the movie I think is missing from the horror canon. And, um, Basically, uh, this, was, this was right before we created QC, and this ended up becoming QC's first project. But um, Pretty good start, I think. <laughs> it's a good one, yeah. Is that helpful? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's helpful, and it also sets a bar that you have to try to constantly, you know, everybody's like, oh, is this going to be as big as Get Out? And you're like, mm -hmm. you can't <laughs> plan that. If, yeah. You know, the, the joke that we were making when we were making Get Out was if Hillary wins, we're probably going to have a day and date movie. And if Trump wins, we might have the number one movie in America. <laughs> and, um, and we actively understood that. And, um, you know, then Trump did win. And we did end up having that movie because it was, it was uh, speaking to something that I think may not have, have reached its fever pitch had Hillary Clinton won. And you know the fact that Trump won and, and what it, that win was bringing out of society created a platform for a movie like Get Out to be more um, influential, I think, and speak more to this thing that people were feeling. It, it was something that was in development way before any of that stuff. And just as Black Klansman was, Black Klansman wasn't something we just started developing because of the success of mm -hmm. Get Out. Um, it was something that we just happened to be doing, and then the marketing coming off of Get Out into that movie just happened to make a lot of sense, and the studios jumped. Um, but so now with, with Get Out, the, it was like, okay, we've never seen that movie, which is a, to the point I was making earlier, which was like, how are you separating yourself from what everybody else is doing, or how do you compete with something like Coachella? And it's, well, you got to do something people haven't seen before. And so where Jordan's saying no one's ever going to make this movie, it doesn't fit any type of model, we were saying that's exactly why we'd make that movie. No one's ever seen that movie. And so uh, basically we, we paid him to write the script. And um, in the writing process, he said, you know, I'm thinking about it, and I just don't know who can direct this movie. You know, the, the list is not that long, and most people want to direct their own movies now, and, and I kind of feel like I need to be this guy, but he didn't feel confident enough that he could present himself as a director uh, in his own head. And forget the fact that he directed like several hundred Key and Peele episodes 
um, and however many short films that adds mm -hmm. up to. And so he was, a, he was a first time director, but he also wasn't because he just had such a, a long history of making short films at such a high level. And um, so once, once it was like, yeah, you should be the director on this, it kind of started to take shape. And um, you know, once everybody felt great about the script, we, um, we just put it in pre-production. And we were scouting the, the different cities around the country. For, for us, we're usually looking for tax incentive states. Are you guys familiar with? So, so you know, you, uh, we were looking at Ohio. So at Ohio had just passed a 30% incentive. And uh, we were looking at Cincinnati. And we go around to the different areas with tax incentives. First we, go, first we call the film commission and say, do you have any left this year? Mm -hmm. Because they run out really fast every year. And um, a lot of them are capped. So each year, they'll, let's say they get $25 million, and that's that. And it's usually gone within two weeks of the application's opening. And then you have to wait for the movies that didn't actually get greenlit to fall out of mm -hmm. their spot. And then you, if you're on the waiting list, you can move up. So, um, so we, go, we go to all the cities where they still have incentives left and um, look for our locations. And that's kind of step one. And that's, and that's the process we were in. We were, we were closing in on probably going to do this in Ohio. Um, you know, Allison was on. Daniel was on. And um, we were all budgeted. Our, our company is a, uh, a finance company in addition to a production company. So we'll, we'll actually fund the production um, if we have to. And it's a great piece of leverage for a company like ours because uh, what you have as you start to negotiate with studios and, and other people is, well, this movie's happening with or without you. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you want to get on and the terms make sense, great. Works for us. If you don't want to, it's still happening. And it seems like that also shows that you have skin in the game too. Like you exactly. believe in this enough that, hey, with or without you. Yeah, and you know, like... Um, Hollywood is very much a community where the fear of missing out is a big driver. You know, everybody wants to wait for someone else to jump in. And, you know, so to be able to say, well, we're making it and get on or get out of the way is, is great. And that's the leverage that we had in this scenario. So when it came time to start having those conversations with a company like Blumhouse, who has an incredible marketing um, ability and universal, uh, who has who, you know, I really credit a major studio deeming Get Out approved for mass audiences to be one of the big wins of the movie because otherwise it could have just been this really weird independent film that every, like if it came out on Netflix, people could have been like, oh, that's that weird movie. Um, but the fact that one of the major studios said, like went wide with it in a really big way and you know it kind of like validates it for you know your parents and people like that that would have never ever gone and seen this movie and so to uh to have that as opposed to like uh you know an A24 or Neon or one of these cool hip younger uh distributors that are kind of tastemakers um i think created the mainstream success for the movie and so that's what we were seeking was, you know, between Blumhouse and Universal, what we were seeking was the widest audience. Mm -hmm. 
and we didn't want to hurt ourselves in the process with the negotiation. And so all along the way, it was, we're not going to give anyone the rights to this movie until our deal is like fair for everyone. De generally speaking, the way we like to negotiate is, what's the most fair for the most amount of people? That's, that's the overriding agenda. We're not trying to make one person get all the glory, even if that would be us. We're not trying to see one person holding the bag if something goes wrong. It's, we're all in this together, kind of to the point that we were, I was talking about earlier. And you know, it's unique as well. Well, a lot of people don't think that way. Mm. And a lot of people think um, they're the most important part of the process. And you know, for us, we'll just say, well, we're not interested in that. You know, we'll, we would rather just not work with you or not do this in this scenario, or we can all be partners. And um, it takes a lot of people a long time to get comfortable with that idea, particularly if they're a studio or a company like Blumhouse that has, you know, a hit come out every three to four months. And um, I think yeah. that's... No, that's great. We're gonna, we'll come back to Get Out, uh, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions, too, uh, related to that very popular movie. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to do is actually uh, get back to how you got started. And so... Uh, we can have some fun with it too. Like, um, how did you figure out what in the heck you were interested in doing uh, when you were 18, 19, 20 years old? And, and how did you think about, you know, you were here in RTF. Uh, when did light bulbs go on? When did you say, all right, let's do this? You're from the East Coast. When did you say, I'm going to go to LA? How, how did this all happen when you were at that age? Um, at that age, so, so uh, you know, the, um, I, I think the department's different now. Um, when I was here, they would have a general studies, like lecture-oriented program, and then they had an in, what they called the intensive production uh, program, which would let like 18 to 25 students in a year. And you would get these super ambitious students in that program, and everybody wanted to be a director. Uh, and you had to like switch off for a year or two in all these different roles. and. Uh, you know, every time whoever wasn't the director would go at half speed. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, everyone felt slighted. I'm your PA this time. Uh, that doesn't work for me. So just uh, to interrupt for a second, everyone wanted to be a director. Who was everyone uh, emulating at the time? They're like, oh, I'm going to be the next, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Um, you know, at the time it was the popular directors were Wes Anderson, Spike Jones, mm -hmm. Richard Linklater. Like, those were the cool indie guys. Uh, it was a really great moment for independent cinema, actually, um, because the, this was the late 90s, and the late 90s really had amazing independent cinema. Um, I, I say, you know, when the entertainment, when the blockbusters of the world went out of business and you couldn't just make whatever terrible movie and sell 13 copies to every blockbuster in the country, um, Billions of dollars stopped coming into the industry uh, every year. I think they, I think there was something like between like 2001 and 2007, something, some number came out like nine billion dollars a year started being lost. And um, even now with VOD, it only really has like barely started to fill in that hole. And um, there were so many more independent films coming out at that time, and and what you see what you see now is all of the great independent filmmakers move to television, and that's why we're 
kind of seeing this great moment in, in TV and, and great character development and all of these things. And it's so much harder now to just like fill an independent theater up with seven great independent films at the same time. Um, but uh, but those were like the cool okay the cool directors at the time at least for like the film school type and then you know then you like your Todd Haynes and all your like um, you know everybody's trading like oh uh, this filmmaker made this Barbie movie about bulimia and you can only see it on this VHS tape <laughs> that's been dubbed over seventy three times and you can barely <laughs> see it it's so cool um, there was all that stuff going on too um, but um, when you have for forced to do all these different jobs, I think the number one benefit is you start to realize where your strengths are. And you know, are you a person who's really organized? Are you a person who's really visionary? Um, you know, are you a person who just really understands story structure? You you know, it put in these groups, you start to kind of learn when to lead, when to follow, where you're really confident with what you're contributing versus not as confident with what you're contributing. And um, it was in those projects that I started to feel like, oh, I, maybe producing is, is the job that I'm fit for. And, but to me, that didn't just mean like paperwork. It meant everything. Like, like I feel like I need to be just as good as the DP at understanding the camera. And I feel like I need to, to be able to speak on the level with everyone about their job at the level that they understand it, or at least close to. So and were you actively producing then? Did you start to actively, you here know? Here in the film yeah. program, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, and, and, you know, but then, you know, producing, essentially, you did everything. It's kind of like the new um, uh, predators that they call them, the producer, director, editors. And um, that's the new, like, online business model and it was kind of more of that mm -hmm. you know but I called it producing but you know producing to me was just getting the job done whatever whatever had to be done you're gonna get that job done and you know randomly the the first job I talked my way into right as I graduated was as as a DP and it was on a documentary and um, it was a Austin based producers and one of the, uh, it was all about how music can be used for healing. And, and one of the shoots brought the production through California. And uh, I just drove from Los Angeles up past San Francisco doing these interviews all over California. And, and you were 21, Yeah, it was like a week out of film school. Okay. And I had no job yeah. in this position. Uh, there was, I completely talked my way into it. It was way over my head. Um, but that's kind of a recurring theme as well. You mm. know, I, I, I've always kind of put myself into a situation that I wasn't quite ready for with the confidence that I was going to do whatever it takes to get the job done right. And that's been, I think, one of the defining characteristics for how I've been able to achieve growth um, because I'm very rarely comfortable. And even to this day, like, I'm still way over my head and, and don't understand half the stuff. And then it's just you just swim your way to the top mm -hmm. and make sure that you figure it out along the way. Try to fake it so that everybody doesn't know. And um, But after coming to California, within like 
within two days of being back in Texas, I packed up my car and moved out there. And uh, mainly because it was so hot. And <laughs> I was like, I will never live in Texas for another summer again. <laughs> uh, and I haven't. Uh, it's not like that anymore. Yeah, I know. I heard. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, we changed it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big complaint. <laughs> um, and uh, when I got out to LA, I, um, I must have faxed out, because we had to do faxes, um, a thousand resumes and cover letters wow. to like every company. And I'd have to like go to Kinko's and do the whole thing and write up a separate cover letter. And it was really interesting because years later, I was getting calls from like Disney and stuff. And I was like, you think I'm still looking for a receptionist job at Disney? Uh -huh. Like I either went home by now or, <laughs> um, and, uh, but I did that and then I got some, I, I was PAing. Um, I only knew one guy that I went to film school with who was in um, sound editing. So he was no help. And, <laughs> um, and so I, I literally just had to uh, rely on callbacks from cold fax submissions. Hmm. And, um, and I ended up getting interviews. And for me, I, uh, at that point, I was like, oh, I want to work for DreamWorks, or I wanna, I, I'm going to work for Paul Thomas Anderson's producing partner. Like, that's it for me. I'm only going to work at Paramount. or one of And um, you know, I was uh, a moron like that. And I turned Bad down. Bad advice. He told before beforehand, Bray said, this, is, this was something that wasn't smart. This is so. not smart yeah. because I turned down some really great job opportunities because I just was like holding out for that perfect job that was going to define me and make everyone in film school jealous. And, um, you know, I missed, I missed a good window of time to like have already started learning. And what I ended up doing was just like struggling through um, PAing on sets or running dailies or do, doing random stuff, just trying to make just enough money to pay my rent, which was way less expensive then than it is now. <laughs> um, and finally, I ended up taking a job at a company called Three Arts Entertainment, which was a management production company. And I convinced myself I didn't want to be in representation, but I could do it because um, of the production aspect. But then I came to realize what that usually means is the managers just attach themselves as producers because they can. And uh, none of them know anything about production for the most part. Uh, that's changing, and the management companies are getting a lot more sophisticated. But at the time, they were just using the leverage of their celebrities to be quote unquote producers. And um, through working in representation, it was, you know, the, the people that we represented were actors, writers, and directors. And in that process, I got to really see, start to connect the dots on how deals work and how the business works. And fortunately, as you said, um, one of our clients was Bernie Mac. And so I got a really great um, overview of, of, because he did independent films like Bad Santa, and he did studio movies with Disney and Spyglass and all these big, bigger companies. We also did a book deal with HarperCollins. And, and I really got to see like live tours, I'm sure, and lo oh, lots of live yeah. live events. Um, and I really got a good uh, round education on like what it takes to drive 
a business. And, um, and I think about it even to this day, like how useful that was as a producer because one of the keys, I think, to negotiating is understanding and empathizing with the other person's perspective uh, as much as your own. So again, you know, what you, what you often see is people don't communicate and they just say no. And you, there's no actual dialogue there. There's no, it's like, I need this, no. Why? Because I said so. And, uh, you know, so to, I would have never had thought to like go get a job at a management company or, or you know, one of these, uh, even like a publicity firm or, you know, in a marketing department or at a law firm. Like you think, oh, that's not what I'm going to do, but every single thing informs the other. And understanding the perspective of the wants and needs of managers and agents and uh, lawyers from that side of the table it informs to this day how I approach deal making for the movies that we're producing. Mm. And um, you know, so I did that for several years, and then and then that was a few years in, and then of course. I uh, had learned everything I needed to learn because I'm a genius. And um, I started my first company with a guy that went to film school here. And um, not knowing at all how ill-equipped we were with our network, you know, like we all maybe combined knew like 50 people. And How did, how did you feel? Did you feel like, it was I felt like, like, all right, we're ready. Anything. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was like, ah, so I totally figured out the business. And uh, now I'm just going to do, do, do it for myself. And um, what we ended up, so we, we wrote a lot of screenplays. This was probably, what, what this was, was so, so during, while I was working for the management company, I would save like any penny that I could. And I think I ended up saving something like $20,000. And over the course of like three and a half years, and, um, and I was like, okay, that buys me a year. Now that might get you like three months. <laughs> but at the time I was like, okay, I got a year to like make this work. And um, we wrote a bunch of screenplays. We, we just did everything creative. It was all creative all the time. And it was awesome. And um, when we were doing that, the way we were making a living was all of the uh, studios had, their home entertainment departments had to fill up every DVD with any level of success with a second disc. So there was, you know, you'd have your director's commentary and the interviews with these people. And uh, we would do a little bit more than that. We would do like animations, short films. We would do narrative stuff that complemented the themes of the movies and things like that. And we would just do them on shoestring budgets. But we got to like run our own little mini make-believe studio and make all this stuff and the home entertainment departments would buy it off of us and put them on the DVDs and, and that's how we were able to make a living at the time. And, um, and that really taught like how do you set up a company? How do you pay taxes? How do you negotiate a deal? And we couldn't afford anything. We couldn't afford accountants. We couldn't afford lawyers. So um, basically I just had to figure out how to do all that stuff on my own which was great because it was at a pretty small level, but at the time it felt like the biggest thing in the world. And it's stuff that I'm sure you do to this and day. At, and to this minute, yeah. um, you take all of that with you. And this was in your 20s? Yeah, I was probably like 25-ish. Yep. Okay. Um, and, 
And, uh, you know, we got a bunch of stuff developed. We even got stuff packaged. We had actors, the, the whole thing, and, and we were ta uh, taking it out, and the studios were just making the smallest little offers that everyone was like, I can't <laughs> stop my day job for this. So um, we could never get anything greenlit. So I said, well, I got to learn financing because um, here's this big, huge black hole of information uh, that literally dictates whether I'm going to have a career or not, and I don't know anything about it. So um, I started going out to people that I had worked with over the years saying, um, you know, I need to learn financing. If there's any leads you can give me, that's what I'm ready to go do. And I'll, I'll even take a step back and be someone's assistant again if it's for the right uh, information. And um, ended up getting going back to a management production company that had created a financing arm, which now more companies, it was actually a little ahead of its time because now more um, studios and, and uh, financing companies are partnering with management companies. If you guys saw the other day, Lionsgate is trying to buy Three Arts Entertainment. So it's going to be interesting to watch the uh, culture shift again now that the studios are going to go try and bring the talent in-house. And that's their way of combating the agency packaging divisions. So the agencies have kind of become studios in and of themselves. They've raised billions of dollars to create these um, competitive studios to the studios. And they control the talent. And that's a leg up to the studios and they're scared. So now the studios are starting to buy management companies to compete with that. And that kind of goes back to the old days when the studios had <laughs> talent under contract. And the, if you were under contract at Warner Brothers, you couldn't go do a blank movie. You could only do, or they could trade you like, a, like an athlete. Um, you know, oh, well, we'll let them out of their contract, but you gotta trade me Tiffany Haddish. And um, we're kind of moving back into that system um, over the next couple of years, and you're seeing it right now. And, um, and so I went to go work for a company that was, that was sort of pioneering that, and they had a finance division. And um, went there and uh, really started to, to take my experience at Three Arts and my experience as an independent producer and put them together in this new environment where they had the thing that I had been lacking, which is a wide network and power. And um, so I got to take all this stuff that I had been interested in for six, seven, eight years and working hard at that they didn't really, uh, none of these people really had any actual production experience, even though they called themselves producers. And so it really carved out a niche for me in this financing division because I knew what it meant when you got a budget. And I knew what it meant when um, you know, a cut came in and you had to give notes on it. And, and um, they, didn't, they didn't understand that stuff. They understood talent deals and negotiations. And so um, in that environment, able to take what I was doing and merge it with what they were doing, we made like something like 10 movies in like two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And it was a really big uh, like explosion of experience. And um, so after that, I said, because I'm a genius, hmm. uh, I'm going to go start my next company because now I've learned everything I need to know. And um, that was Movie Package Company. Okay. And that was in probably 2009-ish. And um, 
basically... Before we get into it, real quick, I'd like to interrupt and, and just say, uh, I'm sure people are reading between the lines uh, and picking up on some of the smart things that you did, right? Like in terms of saying, hey, I don't know this part of the business. Let me find a way to learn that, right? And then it sounds like some of the other lessons are realizing that, oh, like, yes, here they know about finance and they know about working with talent, but they, I actually know more about production than a lot of the people I'm working with, right? So um, anyway, it's, that, that's an interesting aspect. I'd love, to, yeah. And, well, and I don't think I would have been given the opportunity had I not worked at the management company to begin with. Okay. So it's those unintentional things that y you can't necessarily plan for that all kind of can come together to create the opportunity you were looking for in the first place. I'm sure that's a really encouraging thing to hear, right? That it's, you didn't necessarily have a A to B to C plan. No. Right? No. And it might not have been helpful to have an A to you can have one. It's probably not going to work out that way. Um, you know, certainly hasn't for me. I think it's a matter of keeping your keeping yourself open to opportunity. And I think for if you're just starting right now, the key is get started. Don't don't like hold out for that dream opportunity because it's. Maybe it's there, but it's probably not. The key is just to start getting educated. Just start meeting people. You know, if, if you want to do it in New York, you want to do it in Austin, you want to do it in LA, start creating stuff. Just, just do it. And, um, you know, a lot of people talk more and plan more than just going and doing the thing that they're talking about and planning. And uh, even to this day, you know, like, for us, so many people are just talking about what they want to do, and we're like, well, are we going to do it or are we not going to do it? <laughs> and, you know, I think um, there is a different mindset because I think a lot of people can talk themselves, they can talk about all the reasons not to do something, and the important thing is all the reasons why you should do something. And, <clears throat> you know, that... Wow, I actually feel like, you want to say that one more time? I think that's like the, a lesson for everyone, right? Well, you know, like um, one of the things that we that we tell our interns that come in, and, and particularly in development, is um, everybody comes in and, and like me and everyone before them, they think that they know everything and they're very judgmental on the screenplays and, and for whatever all the psychological reasons that, that you would think. But um, we say, we know all the reasons why it's not going to work. <laughs> Tell us all the reasons why it can work. You have to create opportunity. Opportunity is not going to just come to you. So, so even if there's one thing in here that you can build all of the reason to do this around, what is that one thing? What are the three things? Um, because it's a very, it's a very no-oriented business because it's expensive, because there's a lot of ego involved. Um, and um, because we all have expectations. And so um, one, of the, one of the very first things we do to switch people's psychology is to say, I don't want all the things that are wrong with this. I want all the things that are right with it. How did that sound on Get Out? Um, it was, no, you shouldn't look at this as the movie no one will ever make. This is the movie that should be made. I think it was proved that was proved right. Yeah, <laughs> um, and 
but yeah, I do think that that's a fundamental psychology that that not a lot of people bring with them to their careers and and never really learn. And that's a difference that I think has made the difference for us. Great. Um, we still have just a few more minutes, and then we'll turn over to Q and A in about five minutes or so. Um, so maybe let's. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about. Um, since we have sort of a, a short time to get through Movie Package Company and, and get into how QC sure. came together. Yeah. But I'd love to hear about, um, it sounds like 2009 on is where things really accelerated, right? So Movie Package Company, you now had this wealth of information and you were anxious, started a new company, yeah. uh, made a bunch of movies. What, what were sort of uh, the lessons from that, that period? Um, the lessons. I don't know, it was just this grinding out period of, of being responsible for the success or failure of everything and trying to learn as much as possible. Try, I mean, that, that was the period where I really had to learn how you finance a movie because there's all types of different ways you can finance a movie. And you know, learning the foreign sales model, which are you guys familiar with? How you finance? How you could make a ten million dollar movie for actually like a million and a half or two million dollars in actual equity? It's like learning. Learning how do you how do you make that? How, you know, like how do you raise ten million dollars where essentially only like two of it is at risk? And and then how do you have the relationships with the bankers and the investors and stuff to go convince them why what you're saying is true? And running running uh, finance formulas and models and lear learning how to like spreadsheet produce was that was that mm, how okay. do you how do you how do you make a movie in Excel and um, and then like learning and going oh that's why you don't do it that way you know that's why you shouldn't just back a movie in just because you can make it mm -hmm. um, and learning more of those lessons of like does something need to exist? Yeah. Those are the questions we ask ourselves now. Like, like it, have we seen this before? Um, how is this unique? Why will it draw an audience? Does it serve a function in society? Does it need to exist? At that time, it was, how do you run uh, revenue projections and, and actually create a waterfall? And how does a waterfall work? And, uh, you know, learn, learning, like, what, how do SAG residuals work, and how much does that cost? And if you make this movie for three million dollars and it made ten, how come we're still in debt two million dollars? And like that was that period of uh, those were the big lessons of like how do the economics actually work in in the real world? Can you talk about how it how it felt? So um, it with without a you know there there are ups and downs basically, right? And uh, at, at the present, QC is really doing excellent, especially on the heels of Get Out, but many projects that are, as, as you mentioned, coming out right now. Um, can you talk about maybe some of the trials and tribulations of that period of like, oh, hey, this movie didn't work, or hey, yeah. this, how, how did that feel? It's uh, super scary because this is the past, because um, you're getting sued by people. <laughs> And you have to like have nerves of steel, and you have to, and then you um, now you're learning litigation in addition to everything else that you that it takes to just like, and essentially all you're getting out of it in the best case scenario is it goes away, <laughs> you know, like, 
win. Um, and, you know, because people get, uh, they think if something happens and they lose money, you did something either wrong, negligent, or you did it on purpose and somehow you benefited. Because right. there's this image that producers are living in, you know, $50 million homes in silk robes living a lap of luxury, whereas for the most part, most producers are grinding the movie out longer than anybody. They're on it for a minimum usually of like two to five years developing it. Then you have to produce it. Then you have to post-produce it. Then you have to follow through the distribution process. And then you're the one three, four, five, six, seven years later still the one responsible for accounting. Um, maybe you have to audit the studio or the distributor. Um, the guilds are still coming after you for your residuals. These things like stay with you forever. And usually you're the first person like the week before production starts that everybody goes, oh, and you know what? Thank you for all your hard work. We need you to defer your fees. And it's because the PGA doesn't regulate the producer job like uh, the DGA, like WGA, SAG, IATSE, all of these other unions and guilds that say, if you're going to hire one of our members, they have to make X or you're in breach of our contract. The, the producers don't have that. So, and then, and the reason being, oh, well, you're the boss, but not really because you're beholden to a strike price on a budget and any number of things can happen. You can lose a location at the last minute and now this other person knows you're desperate so they're quadrupling the cost of it and now that has to come out of your fee that you've been relying on. And um, so, I forget what you asked. That's me. all right. Well, I, it would be easy to get to get into the uh, the negative. I was just yeah. asking the tough the tough things, right? Those are the those are the, some challenges. Those are the hard things that yeah. you learn, and then you learn how to protect yourself from all that mm. stuff. Uh, in the in the positive, yeah. right? you kind of have to like get put in those situations and learn. Oh, this is what reality can look like. Well, I don't like that. I'm going to change that on the next one. And um, a lot of times what I do is during a project all the way through its completion, I keep a list of all the things I do different next time. And this is, you know, almost 20 movies in now and, and more. Um, I still do it. Oh, next time I'm going to do this different. Great. And it's you do it in real time. Don't wait and go, oh, when everything slows down, I'm going to remember to make that list. If you can do it like, just stop and do it right then. Send yourself an email, create a list. Um, you'll really thank your uh, past self uh, later. That's awesome. Uh, I, I'm going to slip in, uh, if we can, I'll slip in two mini questions and then we'll turn it over to Q&A. Okay. So one mini question is uh, when you and I talked on the phone, you talked uh, a lot about self-care mm -hmm. and how that's something that's been really important to you. Yeah. Uh, and, and something that you've also taught people as a mentor uh, in the industry. Um, and uh, then the other question that Elisa Perrin always likes to ask guests is what you're watching right now. So we'll, we'll, those are two very yeah. different questions, but yeah. then we'll, I'd like to get them in before we go to Q&A. Yeah, um, you know, I think, you know, everybody wants to study screenplay books and the, you know, hero with a thousand faces and, and watch all the movies and read the biographies on uh, Stanley Kubrick. Um, and, and the book smarts are fundamental. They're absolutely essential. But the thing that I think a lot of people don't spend time on is emotional intelligence. 
And that is, one, being in touch with your own emotions, and two, being in touch with the emotions of others. And I think those are uh, keys to longevity, um, both from the point of view of uh, not getting down the path of like drugs and alcohol as a numbing agent and uh, you know to uh, to being able to make deals at a high level and then I think the industry is getting less accepting of that like dictator type of mentality of no it's my way because I said it's my way and I happen to have the leverage today and um, you know I think people are walking away from those types of of projects and and deal making, and you know having having an I was kind of pointing to it a little bit with the going through the management company and understanding what other people needed to be able to go tell their bosses to be able to get a deal closed, and um, you know I think that understanding how you work under pressure, how you can relieve the stress without, um, you know, for however it works for you, how to, when to listen to your ego and when to let it go. You know, these things I think people don't talk about, but they're, they're essential to everyone I know who is succeeding is very comfortable in their own skin and, and confident but not arrogant and um, they share, they share information, they share, they'll share a project um, they're in it for the long run. They're not. They're not coming at, uh, at a place of insecurity or that's beneath me. And you know, I think that that starts with understanding who you are and what you want and what's the most important thing. You know, for us, the most important thing is making a good business, but also, um, you know, giving people something to talk about, having something to say, in addition to just entertaining people. And so, if in you know, and also enjoying our lives while we do it. We've all suffered through those really hard productions, and you get to a point where you're married and you have kids and everything, and you go, God, does the life have to be this hard? I just want to work with people I want to work with. And, um, you know, if, if, uh, if you don't really look at things from up there and say what's actually important, um, it can be difficult to, you can get caught up in the swirl of emotions that come with um, the negotiating process or when you do have a piece of success or you do have a failure and not letting one define you, whether it's a piece of success or a piece of failure. Mm -hmm. and, and your definition should be so much you know, more broader than that and, and, and a bird's eye view than that. And um, you know, I really don't think people think that's as important as I think it is for long-term success. And um, yeah, I guess that's yeah. No, that's great. I think that resonates with a lot of people. Uh, that's a common question: is how do you, you know, enter this industry and, you know, take care of yourself and uh, and have sort of a vision for like maybe a family or something too. Yeah. Yep. The the last question, and I'm I'm sure we we can get more into that, but uh, I'd like to get to some some Q and A. Um, the last question is just uh, what are you what are you watching? What are you enjoying? Uh, watching these days or, or this year? Uh, let's see, I just finished Wild Wild Country, which was interesting. <laughs> um, what else is going on? I saw Easy. Okay. Um, I don't know, you know, the, the sad part is when you're, when you're keeping busy, it's hard to get to the movies. Yeah. I rarely get to go to the movies except for 
um, for industry events. Yep. And so that's a real bummer, and that's one of the saddest aspects of when you have a lot going on. Um, then you become beholden to whatever Netflix is showing. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, which right. can be good or bad. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Let's uh, let's hear some some questions from the audience. And we've got a, we've got microphones coming around. So if you've got a question, just put your hand up, and they'll find you with a microphone. Nothing. I've got more. <laughs> Hi, I'm Emma. Um, I am interested in your film that's um, going to Cannes and kind of how the festival market circuit as like events impact your day-to-day -day business. Um, would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, it's the the festivals are very important to. Um, and I'm sorry to cut off this. Uh, why don't you tell us about Black Klansman as well? Uh, sure. I didn't get to uh, fold that in. Well, I'll start with this. So, so the festivals are very can be very important because a lot of the stuff we do. Um, we just finance and make, and we'll do it without a distributor. And so really there's, you've got South by Southwest and Tribeca and all these festivals, um, and, you know, Sundance, Toronto, Cannes, and um, there's two things happening at these festivals. One is you're trying to sell your movie out of the festival for the biggest amount you can sell it for, and so that's like what we did with one of our other, um, our, the second project we did at QC was a movie called Band-Aid. And it was just a, um, a really cute romantic comedy about a husband and wife who are now constantly fighting. So they turn all their fights into songs and it brings them back together. And it's kind of like a, a, a bit of a musical. And that premiered in dramatic competition in Sundance. So when you have you know, 9,000 movies competing for a slot and 15 get in, instantaneously, those are movies on the top of every distributor's radar. So, so they have entire acquisitions departments that um, all they care about is hitting these festivals. They're at a festival or a market every week of the year somewhere in the world. And um, that's their job is to acquire finished films because the studios are making less and less original movies now because they're putting all their efforts into Avengers movies and, and big, huge, $300 million tentpole things because our, our little indie model is do something they, the audience hasn't seen, give them a reason to show up. The studio's model is make it too big to fail. And so in order to do that, they've cut out 40 other movies they were making per year. And so now that leaves an opening for independent filmmakers to make a movie and get it distributed through one of their output deals. Because they have, you know, a company like Universal has to put a certain number of movies through a deal in every country in the world, like every other month or something. They have to put, they have to keep feeding these, these pipelines. And so that's the opportunity for independent filmmakers and independent financiers to make your movie, bring it to one of these festivals. You don't have to go to a festival, but that's, like I said, you, you automatically get a spotlight on you when you do, and then, um, and then have them acquired out of the festival. So that's, that's one big thing. It's hugely important. Every single company in the business is looking at that business. 
Um, the other thing that's happening at a lot of the at a lot of the festivals is the market. So Cannes, AFM, um, Hong Kong, uh, you know Berlin, the European film market, they all have that. The sister event is this is this market, and that's where the the like day to day business is happening. And so I was talking about the foreign sales market. So. So let's say I have a movie that um, we want to make for, it's going to be $15 million and we only want to put like $3 million into it of our money. How do you get that movie made? So you, you, know, you have whoever you have in it, Chris Pratt, and um, you hire a foreign sales company and they go to um, Cannes and they say, okay, I've got the producers of Get Out. They got this movie with Chris Pratt. Here's the screenplay. It's this genre. It's this rating. It's going to be this running time. Um, it's this writer. And, um, and I need blank out of Germany. And you know, they go, I need a million dollars from you, Germany. You got to pre-buy this thing sight unseen. Or if you make us go make this movie and you want to buy it later when it's made, I'm going to charge you even more. And so this is called the pre-sales game. So that's what's happening in, in, at, the, um, at the markets that are, that are accompanying the major film festivals. And there's the pre-sales and there's the post-sales. So maybe you did go make that movie, and now you actually, there's two things can happen. One is you're either in the middle of making it and you're showing footage, um, and then you're saying, hey, I've told you to pre-buy it. I'm give you <laughs> one more shot at this thing. Here's some footage. You can see it's good. Uh, but if you make us wait till it's done, then I'm going to charge you double. And um, By the way, I really love the, uh, like, this is the nuts and bolts, but also we're getting how you, you sell as well. I yeah, like well, it. then this is the foreign sales company. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, like, just yeah. the way that you're saying, like, Germany, this is what we need. Yeah. Now's the time. Like right. that's a yeah. So so let's say you let's say you sold it as a pre-sale. They were like, okay, great. We believe in these producers. We believe in this director. We believe in this actor. Okay, great. We're gonna buy it. What they do is they say, um, but we're gonna give you, you know, a hundred thousand dollars today. Like when we sign the contract, and we're gonna give you the rest when you deliver the movie. So now you. Um, you only have $100,000 now. You can't make the movie, $15 million movie with that. So, so your foreign sales company at this, at this market comes back and they say, um, okay, we sold $9 million of, of contracts. Um, and we then take those contracts to a bank and we say, okay, we want to do a debt deal. We're going to collateralize a loan against these contracts because these distributors have to give us this money if we deliver the movie to them. They can't say, oh, I don't like the movie. I'm not buying it. They're contractually obligated. So give us a loan for against these pre-sales. And so they'll say, okay, well, we'll give you 90 cents on the dollar because, I don't know, maybe the, the Russians run out of money and the distributor uh, is not going to pay. So we'll give you 90 cents on the dollar. And now you have you know, nine million dollars, and um, and then you can say, oh, and but by the way, we didn't sell any of the Asian territories, and actually, that's worth like another two point eight million dollars. And um, then you say, okay, um, and then there's certain companies that specialize in this. It's called a gap loan, a gap financing, and so um, either the bank or a specific 
company will come in and say, oh, well, we'll, we'll finance the gap at 50 cents on the dollar. And, um, and so they might come in and say, okay, well, yeah, the rest of the Asia is worth $3 million. We'll give you a million and a half. So now you have $11.5 million. And then you go, oh, okay, and we're going to shoot it in uh, New Mexico, and they have a 25% rebate. Um, and so then uh, there's, there can be another company that specializes in tax credit financing, or you can just try to wrap it all up in, in the bank loan. And, um, and maybe your, your um, tax credit's worth $2 million. And so now you're making a $15 million movie, but you have to put up like two of your actual hard equity. And that's always the hardest money to find. But if you can then show why the unsold international territories and the North American rights are worth more than that amount of money plus everybody's sales agent fees and, and your collection account fees and your residuals and the potential that maybe some distributors go out of business in the meantime, um, then you can uh, usually raise that amount and, um, and end up getting your movie financed through what they call, they call that a structured finance deal. And, um, and so, those are kind of the things happening at the markets, and they're absolutely essential to the business. And the entire industry works in tandem with those things. So, um, and the, really the, the big ticket ones are CAN and AFM, and they're exactly six months apart. And pretty much the entire business works towards CAN and towards AFM. And so, because um, that's where all the buying and selling takes place. Great, that's awesome. That was a, a masterclass in five minutes on that too. And the other nice thing is that if you if you only have two million of equity as producer, you still own quite a bit more than you would have if you you'd done more equity financing, right? Yeah. 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 Cool. Other questions. Hi, Hi Ray. Uh, I'm Max. Uh, I'm curious about sort of the the indie QC entertainment sensibility that you guys have towards features. Uh, entering the new format of, of television. So what sort of approach are you guys taking and, and is there kind of a shift you want to make or do you feel like you can take your sensibility right into television? Yeah, we're mm -hmm. desperately trying to get into TV, uh, mainly so we can stay home more, <laughs> um, which is not a joke. Um, <laughs> the, um, you know, because it, to... To tangent a little bit, but I'll but I'll answer the question. Um, you know, every time we make a movie, we have to leave our families and go live in whatever that tax incentive state is. So last year, I lived in Utah for three months, and I lived in uh, Brooklyn for four months. And like, I have a little kid and a wife, and and um, it's really hard. And so, um, you know, and then we and then we made a movie in Los Angeles, and some of them overlapped. So you're flying across the country, and even when you get to LA, you're not seeing your family because you're going to set on that project. And um, and so we're like, hey, you know what sounds great? TV. <laughs> um, you know, because a lot of TV actually shoots in LA. So the California tax incentive is um, structured towards the major studios and networks. So um, they only provide 5% of their annual budget to independent films, which is a joke. It's like $6 million. It's gone in like two projects. And, um, but they do finance, they do commit to a lot of television. So a lot of TV gets to stay in LA. So, um, 
oddly enough, aside from the fact that it's a great way to get to in front of people's eyeballs, it's like a very practical, like, we just want to be home for a couple of years. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're still trying to decide or tr trying to learn if our sensibility crosses over. I mean, you've seen the Duplass brothers excellently make their, their same exact tone and voice in television and film. It's, it's, you know, it's really impressive. Um, we don't know what that looks like yet. Our, our sensibilities are also all over the place. We're just as interested in kids' stories as we are in horror movies or romantic comedies or documentaries. And for us, it's, you know, we, we keep getting asked to be a branded thing and we keep rejecting it and going, no, QC stands for quality control. Our brand is, whatever it is, it's going to be good, mm. which is, that's arrogant and that's lofty. Um, but, you know, for us, it's like, no, I'd rather keep my, I'd rather keep my um, options open to just tell a good story than have to regurgitate the same type of movie over and over again because it will make my life easier or that's what the market dictates we should be doing. Um, to now loop that into Black Klansmen, that's one of the first times momentum worked in our favor and branding in that way because um, Black Klansmen was something we were developing already but, uh, pre Get Out and we were actually developing it with Jordan to direct and um, Get Out went first and after Get Out came out, it was, um, I think I should be doing my own original movie next. I don't think I should do an adaptation of a book. Mm. And so we were like, okay, well, well then why don't you just be a producer then? And he was like, great, because he had been helping us develop mm -hmm. the screenplay. And so um, then we brought on Spike Lee, and it was one of the first times where, because Get Out had just come out, um, all of the studios were like, even making us um, like blind offers. Like, I don't even need to see the screenplay. I'll, I'm going to make you an offer. And it's because that branding worked for them because they could say from the producing team of Get Out comes this other story. It wasn't anything we planned. It wasn't, it was just we thought it was a crazy story uh, that we loved. And, um, and it just so happened to be that thing. And now everyone thinks we're just going to keep doing that type of movie. But then none of our new movies reflect that sensibility. So people are like, are you guys idiots? Um, and we're just sitting there saying, no, we just find all this other stuff interesting too. Um, so how do you make that into TV? We're still learning. Um, what we're doing is um, working with people a lot more experienced than us. This goes back to put, getting your ego in check. And we're saying, um, hey, look, we'll literally pay for the development, and we'll give you half of whatever deal we can get. And because you've gotten shows on the air, and we need the education. Mm. And so we're just partnering with people and saying, let's be 50-50 partners. We'll do, we'll do whatever legwork we need to do. We'll put up money, whatever we need to do. Just let's see what you did to get all this stuff going. And that's, and that's how we're trying to crack television. Great. I, th I think we're, we're basically out of time. Uh, we can, maybe we can squeeze in one more uh, little 30-second question. Go for it. Uh, 
generally, generally speaking, when you're working with uh, directors, writers, or editors, uh, what makes like for a fruitful, fruitful collaboration, and what do you do to enhance that collaboration? One, open communication is the key. Um, being, you know, having having a person on the other side who wants to hear what you have to say and is not just waiting to uh, tell you why your opinion's wrong, which can oftentimes be the case. Um, you know, being able to say a stupid idea and not have, like, you have to create a safe zone of, like, there's no bad ideas. Nobody's going to judge each other. Let's just, everyone just say, even if it's, like, the the most far off possible thing that could ever happen, let's just put it out there. And you never know what little idea is gonna spark another idea. And you know, I find the most fruitful collaborations are those where it is a collaboration and not like a working relationship. And um, we really try to encourage that from the beginning and, and, and we're at a point now where if we're not really sensing that, unless there's some uh, majorly compelling reason, we'll just won't. Like, our partner is as important as the screenplay at this point. Um, and, you know, we'll let a great screenplay go if we're not liking the, the way that person communicates and works, and particularly with directors. Great. Awesome. Well, let's give a big thank you to Ray Mansfield for being here. Thanks for listening to Media Industry Conversations. For more information about upcoming speakers or to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu. If you have a moment, please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you love the show, let us know. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Brett Siegel and Britta Hansen, and the program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. We hope you join us again next time for another Media Industry Conversation.